smithville.com. And from The Herald Times, featuring coverage of local news, entertainment, and sports. In print at heraldtimesonline.com and on your mobile device. And from the Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org. And welcome to Noon Edition. In the last decade, the number of students borrowing money has nearly doubled from 23 million to 43 million borrowers. Last year, 69% of students took out student loans. Student loans are the most common form of debt used to finance education for both students taking on their own debt and for parents and grandparents financing the education. 20% of those with outstanding student debt were behind on payments in 2017. Federal law does require that students receive some form of counseling to help them understand how much debt they're taking on, but the instruction is usually done online, and a lot of times it's hard to follow. Schools in Indiana and across the country are trying to remedy this by offering financial literacy programs. Indiana University credits its program Money Smarts with lowering its total student loan volume by 17% from 2011 to 2015. Today on Noon Edition, we're discussing student loans and financial literacy. Emma Adkinson, our education reporters, co-hosting with me today. Our guests today include Troy Montanay, the executive director of Indiana Education Savings Authority. We have Jim Kennedy, the associate vice president for University Student Services and Systems. Phil Schumann, the Director of Financial Literacy for Indiana University's Money Smarts Program, and Doug Ummel, the Financial Advisor for Wellington Investment Advisors. You can join this week's show by calling 812-855-0811, or you can tweet at us at Noon Edition. So thank you all for being here today. So I'm just hoping we can get the conversation started by talking about this concept of, of debt and how it's changed over the last 20 years. Maybe, Jim, you can get us started. Sure. Um, you know, as you know, there's more and more students that are using student loans to finance their education. So um, we have made an emphasis on getting students educated about their debt. And it's amazing. This has been going on now for almost 10 years. Um, President McRobbie here at Indiana University made this uh, emphasis. Um, we knew it was going to be a big issue for students and their debt. Um, so we've taken a couple, a big approach on this. Three different things we've put in place. Um, one, when we, one is we wanted to start financial literacy, and, and Phil can talk more about that in the Money Smarts program. The second thing we wanted to look at was financial aid. All our business process, processes around financial aid, what we could do. Uh, we put in place this debt letter, um, as you were talking about, just the overall information that students get about their debt. Um, and the third thing was an emphasis on finishing in four years, taking 15 credits per semester and getting out in four years. And those three initiatives together, I think, have really had a big impact on our students. The last thing we ever want to see a student do is leave the university with excessive debt. Um, we think student loans are a great way to finance your education, um, but we want you to leave and be able to pay those loans back. So with those three initiatives, we've had great um, success you, you mentioned some numbers, but actually our most recent uh, numbers, we've, we're down about $126 million over the last six years, or 19%. Um, we have our student uh, debt. We have basically um, more and more students that are taking lower amounts of student loan debt, that are asking a lot of questions about their debt. So that has been our big objective with the, th these three initiatives, and so far it's been very successful. 
Can you talk a little bit more about Money Smarts in particular? Yeah. So, I mean, we started Money Smarts back in 2012 with the idea to kind of supplement this these financial aid changes, um, this Finish in Four initiative. Like, you know, the university can do what we can do to kind of lessen the cost for students, but then also put some of the decision-making processes back in the students' hands and have them make, you know, more or less informed financial decisions to help them, you know, to navigate their costs and hopefully make their uh, degree more affordable. So we've done we've built a few different things. Number one, we've built just our website, moneysmarts.iu.edu, which basically ter- serves as our 24-7 portal to all things financial wellness when it comes to student finances. So students can go there, search by topic, figure out what it is they want to learn, and go that route to kind of navigate you know, the appropriate topic for them at that point. Uh, we've also launched what's called our IU Money Smarts team. So it's a peer-to-peer education model where we have a team of, depending on the year, 10 to 15 students that are trained to talk to other students about their financial situations and help them figure out what might be the best course of action from them. They don't necessarily like say, like this is what you should do or this is what you should do. It's more like these are what your options are. These are the resources that you could go to on campus to help you figure out as well. But it provides that opportunity for somebody to talk to another student that they feel has been in their situation before. Uh, Another big initiative that we launched was a couple years ago, we built our own financial literacy platform called Money Smarts U. So basically, any student at Indiana University can log into their Canvas account, so basically the learning management system here at IU. They can go in, and we've built 21 courses on personal finance that students can take. The first 14 that we built were based on demographics. So there's like a a course for first-year students, second-year students, third-year, fourth-year, et cetera, et cetera. Last year, we built some and and launched them that are more focused on specific populations, so like international students, student veterans, student athletes, um, medical and dental students. And then this year, we're going to be launching another seven courses that are more deeper dives into these topics where we get a lot of questions. So budgeting, credit, debt, um, insurance, taxes, like a lot of those types of things we're trying to fill in those gaps that we've kind of missed. But really, I think the combination of the things that we've done, the financial aid end, our end, I think we've really done a good job of kind of changing the culture of getting people to ask more questions about their personal finances. Are those things available to parents too, or is this all specifically geared just to students? So any of our resources are available to parents as well. If they, um, you know, we actually build a specific parent course in our Money Smarts U, uh, just because we do see a lot of parents either, you know, are, are somewhat ignorant of some of the decisions they have to make in school, or you know, they just, they just don't know. So we wanted to make sure that we were educating them as well, because we know that they're a big part of these financial decisions, too. Yeah. And Doug, I want to get you involved there. If you can just talk about, as a financial advisor, and given the way sort of uh, college debt has changed, have you seen more folks coming to you for help on how to navigate this? Certainly. Yeah. Um, You know, when I started in this business 20 plus years ago, uh, there really wasn't nearly the crippling debt load that a lot of students come out with now. It was, it was more the kids that needed a little bit extra to get to school kind of thing that, that took the, the student loans out. And now, I think the last statistic I saw is the average uh, bachelor's degree grad takes 21 years to pay off their loan. And that's just ridiculous. I mean, that, that handicaps you, hamstrings you for life. And so what we really do is, is try to talk through with both parents and students how to be reasonable and rational about the amount of loans you're taking out and also other, other ways of paying for school, other ways to leverage dollars, uh, which you know, Troy can talk about with the 529 stuff. Um, 
but there are really there are other options. Uh, but you can't just go into school like a lemming of, well, everybody does this, and this is what we need to do, and so let's just take these loans out. I guess that's what we do. No, that's that's not what we do. Uh, debt actually does hurt you, and debt's an enemy. It does seem like loans, though, are just, that's just something you assume you will have to take on now. It's not really a matter of, will I have to take it on? It's how much. Well, that's a, that's a shift in, in thinking as well. Um, that doesn't need to be the case. And now getting through school without loans takes commitment, takes hard work, and takes doing things your friends don't do. But it is absolutely possible. Hmm. Okay. Well, then, um, Troy, if we can get you involved in the conversation now, I, I want you to just basically explain, first of all, what a 529 plan is. Absolutely. Really happy to talk a little bit about that and the program we administer at the IESA here in Indiana called College Choice 529. 529 plans, it's, it's named that way because it's a section where uh, college savings plans are nestled in the tax code, kind of like a 401k or similar plan is for retirement. And basically, 529 plans allow folks to set aside post-tax dollars um, that can grow tax-deferred, and then earnings on the investments actually become tax-free at the point of withdrawal. And it's really great because um, the use is just so broad. This isn't just for tuition. It's for room and board, books, fees, qualified expenses, computers associated with higher education. And they're not just um, available to be used for traditional higher education either, you know, not necessarily the limestone buildings of IU or red brick uh, buildings of DePaul University where I went. Um, these can be used for any institution that's eligible to receive federal financial aid. So a lot of two-year community colleges, um, career technical and vocational programs, the potential use is, is just really broad. And additionally, 33 states around the country offer upfront state tax incentives to contribute to the home state program. And in this case, listeners of this program are fortunate to live in the state with the most generous of these tax incentives in the country. You can actually get a 20% state tax credit worth up to $1,000 every year to contribute into your College Choice 529 account. And then again, you get all the long-term benefits of tax-deferred earnings and tax-free withdrawals. So it's really about starting as early as possible, um, saving as much as possible or, or as much as you want, um, and kind of right-sizing your savings, I think. As, as Doug said, student loans aren't an inevitability, um, but if you have to take them, I think it's best to limit them as much as possible and take a reasonable amount, right-size the amount of loans that um, you can probably afford to pay off with whatever higher education credential you're going to get. But we are so fond of saying that every dollar saved now ahead of time within a tax advantage vehicle like a 529 is a dollar and then some not borrowed and paid back later on um, decades down the road in most cases. Okay, great. Um, Doug, I see you shaking your head at that. Can you tell me a little bit more from your perspective about why that rings so true now? Well, yeah, I mean, Emma, the, you just need to save and doing so in a tax-free manner like that, um, plus the what a lot of people don't realize is a tax credit is very different than a tax deduction. So when Troy talks about a, a 
20% tax credit, that means if you put $5,000 in, you save $1,000 on your state taxes. Mm -hmm. It's not a deduction that's subject to income limitations, et cetera. And grandma and grandpa can get that deduction, aunts and uncles can get that deduction, mom and dad can get that deduction. Um, so yeah, it, it's fantastic. And Troy, you can actually um, speak to the, the expansion of the program through the last tax law uh, through you know, K through 12 as well. Absolutely. That, that's a great segue. First off, a couple couple of points to follow up on, you know, especially living in a state with a really, really low income tax rate of around 3%, like Indiana, deductions just aren't as impactful here as they are in other states with, with higher state income tax rates and progressive state income tax rates. But a tax credit is literally free money. You cannot beat something with effectively a 20% return up front. Um, and again, it applies to any amount of contributions. If you can only afford to put in 100 bucks a year, it's $20 back um, that you're going to get um, on the next year's tax return. Um, and as you said, third-party contributors are eligible, too. So parents, grandparents, aunts and uncles, we hear a lot about crowdfunding these days. You can effectively think of crowdfunding um, higher education by enlisting friends and family members who want to contribute money into the account as well. And then lastly, the expansion you mentioned, which is a great segue to another potential expansion that's moving through Congress right now. A couple of years ago in um, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, or just tax reform as it's kind of uh, widely known in America, um, you can now actually pay for up to $10,000 of K-12 through tuition expenses a year from a 529 plan account as well. Um, you know, if your beneficiary, loved one, child, or grandchild is incurring those expenses, we're generally not really encouraging this um, widely, I would say, just because, um, you know, the real power of a 529 plan is for its long-term uh, compounding interest and savings potential to specifically channel it towards higher education. But the next potential expansion that uh, was just thrown into a uh, retirement-focused piece of legislation in Congress known as the SECURE Act is actually taking the same eligible amount, up to $10,000 per year, and making um, student loan repayment a qualified 529 expense as well. Um, so this, for instance, you know, if you oversave for one beneficiary, one child, um, but don't save enough for another child, or they choose to go to a more expensive school, or um, they have to accrue more loans than their sibling or, or another family member, you can actually take some money, uh, would be able under this legislation, if it makes it all the way through, to have student loan repayments be a qualified expense from 529 plans as well. So they're really becoming more broadly um, education savings plans. But obviously, like I said, the most, uh, I think, transformative impact is when they're funneled towards longer term, post high school, higher education needs. Jim, I wanted to get your opinion about how, how we ended up in this situation where we're talking so much. I think, Doug, I think maybe you called it a crisis, and I've certainly seen that in other places. But how do we, how do we end up here? Well, I think we have to take a look at it by really you, – you always hear about these students that have $100,000 in debt or $200,000. And that's really not the case uh, for many public institutions, especially looking at Indiana University. Our average debt of students graduating here is about $27,000. Um, and that's across all of our IU campuses, right? So with that, that'd be about a $288 a month repayment for 10 years, okay? So uh, – and we carefully monitor that. Now, we're – 
obviously when we find a student that has excessive debt and we get students that transfer in here or go to graduate school, there's a lot of different uh, moving pieces with that. But for our undergraduate, especially for Indiana, uh, our public institutions are a very good value. We've got a great state aid program, and we combine that with our own institutional money, and such as Indiana uh, University and other public universities have put a lot of their own money into that as well. Um, we are a very good value. So I think, you know, when you're looking at the whole thing, the $1.5 trillion, I think you have to really get into, you know, what the, what the sectors are. You know, a lot of that would be you've got for-profit institutions, you have privates, you have all... But from a public perspective, uh, we consider the 27111 which is our average debt, a very good value. Mm-hmm. We were talking earlier about some students that decide they don't want to take any loans out. They just want to work four jobs and not take any. And I think you have to really carefully balance that out, what you want to do, because taking out those loans and be able to focus on your studies and graduate in four years and get out, um, I consider that to be a pretty good investment, the $27,000, uh, which is our average. So, again, w- you hear about these in the, in the news about the students that have $100,000 or $200,000. That's really not the case at Indiana University. We have very, very few, a very small percentage. And um, the ones that we do, um, Phil talks to those students to see, and a majority of those are for transfers or they've come in or there's some other story behind that. So, um, it, But it is a lot worse when you're looking at for-profit schools. Yes. And, you know, our cost per, you know, our tuition here at, at Bloomington or our regional campuses or IUPUI, we're very affordable um, piece of it. I mean, there's a lot of that goes into higher education. It's not just the tuition and fees. you got room and board and living expenses. But um, we are able to offset a lot of that with um, for students that, that have need with the state and federal programs as well as our own institutional money to keep that number very affordable. And I think that's been a big part of our strategy here as well, not just here at Indiana University, but a lot of the publics um, are doing that as well to keep the, the net cost down. Are students getting less state and federal aid, though, when we're talking about Pell Grants and those kind of things? Is there still as much available? Well, we, we have a, a, a great state aid program. It's probably one of the best in the country. So um, when Troy was Absolutely. talking about the, the 529 plans, that in combination with our state aid programs is really, really a nice thing for students. Um, Pell Grants um, have gone up a little bit. Um, but over the course of the last maybe 10 to 15 years, probably not as much as they really could to offset some of the costs. So what's happened a lot with that um, here at Bloomington is those have been offset with some of our own institutional aid programs, such as the Pell Promise and the Covenants and things like that, to really help keep the cost down. So to answer your question, I, I think you really have to, to, to pull back on that big number. I mean, obviously... Um, again, we're, we're horrified when we ever talk to students that have excessive debt and they've come in here and they've made some decisions. And But when we get students in here, we can talk to them and work through it. Our goal is to avoid that as much as possible. You know, Jim is absolutely right. He mentioned state aid programs. And I, I read a study recently that actually post-recession, Indiana is one of the few states where state-based aid like that. Um, here, it's most commonly um, known or manifested as 21st century scholars. We're one of the few states where that aid has actually increased. And obviously, it's income restricted. And, and you know, there's a little bit of, of work that I think folks need to do to, to learn about the availability and maybe their personal eligibility for the program. But it is just a tremendous investment that Indiana um, makes in its, in its young people that, that qualify for the program. And then a way that, that our program, College Choice 529, overlays with that is any savings in a College Choice 529 account do not negatively impact eligibility for that program. So 
while you know lower income folks might not have as much to set aside in a 529 plan account they can put a little bit into our program to use for books for a laptop um, for anything else to complement uh, that full tuition scholarship that 21st century scholars provides and then he talked about value um, there is a lot more happening i think in higher ed generally within the state of indiana than there is in a lot of other places around the country to to control costs, to make people aware of the costs. Um, so if you're born in Indiana and I think committed to um, going to school in Indiana, generally speaking, there are more resources um, out there for you to combat this problem than there might be if you decide, I want to go get the same degree at a more expensive out-of-state school, for instance. And, and one of the things that Jim said a second ago, and I think he used the right word there, was excessive debt. Um, you know, in our case, like it's not student debt that's the issue. I think it's excessive debt that is the issue, um, and so we really want to make sure that we're doing right by students by, again, you know, from my end, like educating them about what kinds of debt they should be taking out, and making sure that they don't go above a line that certainly could put them in a position of negatively affecting them for years to come. Uh, because you know, it, you know, we do want students to work while they're in school, and there's actually research out there that says that students that work somewhere like 10 to 15 hours a week they're actually going to be better academically um, as a result of doing that work. And so they're getting a little bit more money in their pocket, so they're not having to take out as much debt, and it puts them in a better position. But what we don't want is students feeling like, okay, I don't want to take out debt because debt is a really scary thing. And as a result, they're working more and more hours because once they cross that 20-hour threshold, once they get up to you know, 30, 40 hours, whatever, it's taking time away from, from their academics. It puts them in a position where they're less likely to graduate, or if they do graduate, it's going to take them longer longer to graduate, which is going to cost them more money in the long run. So really, it comes back to, you know, again, from my end, educating them about what's, you know, that right balance between working and taking out debt. So that way you're in a position to, you know, graduate, have that management, uh, manageable payment. So that $27,000 that we have, it's a, it's a conscious thing that we're putting in place to make sure that students are not graduating with that excessive debt. D and I would also echo, too, that the completion and on-time completion is so critical as well because a significant portion of people that default on student loan debts are actually defaulting on amounts of like $5,000, $10,000 because they weren't necessarily well prepared for how much college was going to cost. And they get a semester in or a year in and are, are, are kind of struggling to acclimate in one way or another, and they get a little shocked by the sticker price of college. And so they drop out or, or they don't finish on time and, and they default on that because without the credential they started pursuing, they don't really have, um, you know, a sure route to income necessary to repay their debt. I don't envy someone with a hundred or two hundred thousand dollars of law school or medical debt, but generally speaking, they're, they're going on to lucrative careers that at least enable them to make consistent payments. Um, a lot of folks just get, I think, a little nervous and scared about what they perceive to be a really high cost um, and don't follow through and finish in time and, and, and leave with a, you know, an amount of debt that's manageable and a career path and an income that supports their repayment plan. Doug, do you think just college loan debt is, is safe debt? That's a good investment? For well, yeah. I mean, as a, as a CFP, certified financial planner, I, I talk to people all the time about debt. Um, and we, you know, try to look at the whole picture when we're counseling folks. And debt really, you know, I don't like debt. Um, obviously, most financial guys don't. But um, I'm not 
death on debt and borrowing for things that go up in value. So mortgages, your house typically goes up in value. Education, I would put in that category. Uh, you know, as Jim kind of alluded to, it really is an investment in yourself, an investment in your future learning, your, your future earning potential, rather. Um, and so, but the key there is to be responsible about and thoughtful about the amount of debt we're taking on. So, you know, I always encourage folks as they're looking at colleges, and I, I talk with high school students all over town, um, just in, in counseling them in this area. But I always want them to think about and make a cost-benefit analysis kind of judgment there. So as an example, a, a crazy end-of-the-spectrum example I always use is you don't go to Harvard and take out a ton of, of student loan debt to become a social worker because social workers typically don't, aren't compensated incredibly highly. Uh, and therefore, you're not going to want to take out a whole ton of debt in order to finance a future career that you probably exactly right. won't be able to make the money to pay back, okay? So, you know, again, like Troy was talking about, um, doctors, lawyers, I'm okay. You know, you get into the six-figure debt, that's never comfortable no matter who you are um, and no matter what your career is because all it takes is one oops, uh, and you've, you've got a whole lot of trouble. Uh, if, you, if you're disabled, if something happens, you're in a car accident, you can't perform the duties that you've been educated to do, now what do you do with all this debt? Uh, so really responsibility is the, the key and the, the word. You have to be thoughtful about it. You have to be intentional about it. Don't just wake up and find yourself in $50,000 worth of debt. Think about it. it needs to, there needs to be a plan involved there. And there's lots of things you can do to, to work through that plan and um, you know, lots of different recommendations that we make with folks. Today on Noon Edition, we're talking about college debt and financial literacy. We do have to take a break, but we'll have a lot more after the break. And you can call in with your questions, 812-855-0811. We'll be right back. From the Milton Met studio at IU's Radio TV building, this is Noon Edition on WFIU. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state throughout the day at WFIUNews.org and on Twitter at WFIU News. You can watch unfiltered video of breaking stories on Facebook Live, and you can get a digest of all the day's top stories delivered to your inbox each afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of the headlines, plus the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe now at WFIUNews.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. Today we're talking about student loans, debt, and financial literacy. We have a great panel of experts here to take your questions, and also you can just listen and enjoy the conversation. Um, we have Phil Schumann in the on the phone. I'm sorry, I am all messed up. We have Phil Schumann in the studio here, and Troy McGenty is on the phone, and then we have Jim Kennedy as well. And I apologize, my papers. This is the problem when Bob's not here and I have too many papers in front of me. But Doug Ummel is here. He's a financial advisor for Wellington Investment Advisors. Um, so, Doug, I wanted to talk a little bit about parents' role in paying for college. What do you see as parents' biggest struggles when they are paying for college and their kid is in school? Well, a couple of them. Um, 
I'm, a, I'm, I'm the father of six, and so this is a personal thing to me right now, um, down from 17 down to three. So the next 20 years of our life is going to be consumed with trying to answer this question. Uh, and as I, as I talk to parents, uh, the first thing I'm, I always kind of talk through with them is, you know, just because you gave birth to these children and raised them does not obligate you to pay for college. Um, so that's the first thing. There's this this feeling of I have to do this um, in a lot of cases, even if it means sacrificing my financial stability, my retirement, my um, long-term goals and planning. And there are many, many, many ways to get through school. Um, lots of different different options and thoughts. Um, but you know, as parents, I think the the best way you can do that is encouraging your children to be responsible and then walking them through the different steps and. You know, I, I know that there's a lot of, um, you know, there's no difference between men and women, but there are between boys and girls from experience um, having having boys and girls. Boys are typically not as on it when it comes to looking through school. And there are exceptions to everything. But my son's basically like, oh, yeah, school. That's a couple of years from now. We'll deal with that later. Um, but but the parent's role is to really bring that home and, and talk through and work with your kids to do that. And so helping them understand um, you know several different options one of them is you need to choose an affordable school what does that look like um, you know and, and as, you know as Jim mentioned here before IU in state is is very very affordable and doable for most in-state students that want to go um, but you look at scholarships you look at grants you look at aid uh, I encourage parents to, to work with their kids to make a part-time job out of applying for scholarships. There, are, there is money everywhere out there. You just have to look for it. It doesn't. You don't just walk out the door and somebody hands you a scholarship. You actually have. There's work involved in doing that. But there is money in a lot of different places. Um, so treat it like a job. The internet's your friend. Um, Google, 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 and then do it again a month later. Um, stuff shows up all the time on that kind of thing. Look into the 21st Century Scholars Program uh, for listeners that are our IU, or I'm sorry, Indiana state residents, which most of our listeners are here. Um, scholars.in.gov uh, is the website there. So get on that, look at that. That needs to be done when the kids are in junior high, actually. So seventh, eighth grade, parents of, of elementary or middle school children, uh, look into that. That's a, a fantastic op, you know, opportunity and option there as well. Um, working during school is certainly something that I think most of us here on this panel probably did when we were in school. Um, there are jobs where you can do quite well. Um, I was just actually downtown, ran around the corner to grab something to eat, and walked into a little cafe that two IU students opened downtown uh, right off the square here. A sophomore and a junior opened this little cafe. Um, you know, that's, that's probably on the extreme end. Uh, that's great entrepreneurship, et cetera. But... You can make money when you're in school just because you're, you're studying doesn't mean you're completely incapable of working. It, one to just add on to Doug, and I know, I know what you're talking about with the parents' perspective, and I, I don't think parents won't ever get in a situation that, where they're sacrificing their retirement or things like that. Absolutely. Um, but there really is a partnership here, um, especially for dependent undergraduates, and, and it really is between the family, it's, it's the, the state, it's the federal uh, government, and it's also the institution to kind of work together on those different uh, sources of funding. Um, obviously, parents that have substantial income have, you know, when they fill out the FAFSA or the free application for aid, there's a there's an obligation there to contribute 
um, part. And what happens sometimes, unfortunately, for students is parents have not planned um, for their kids' education. And, of course, then the students get saddled with a lot of um, debt which unfortunately they shouldn't really have. Um, and we understand everybody has a different situation. There's hardships, things happen to people. But um, as they're going through, I think it's really important to start that planning process really early on. And we've tried to put more tools out there, and, and Phil's done a great job of putting that mm-hmm. so, so people can take a look. Because if you don't really talk about those things and figure out, then what happens, because we do have students that come here that, that walk in the door the first day and say, here I am, I want to figure out how I'm going to pay for this. And it's like... Um, that might have worked 30 years ago, but now it doesn't work anymore. So you really have to have that down before you walk. You know, you get here and really a, a plan. Yeah, and we we actually build something called the Uncomfortable Guide to uh, Planning for College that we built for parents to have that conversation with students. Because one of the things we see is that kind of Jim said, like students walk in the door and they're like, okay, we'll figure this out. Well, no, this conversation needs to be happening several years before students graduate from high school. Yep. And it's an it's definitely an awkward conversation, you know, because we don't know, you know, we don't know what direction it's going to go. But every student needs to know what their responsibility is going to be when they walk in the door, how they're going to pay for college, and whether or not that means their parents are going to help them out a little bit, or if they're not going to be able to help them out at all. They need to know that so they can figure out what their plan is going to be from there. Yeah, and let me interject here. When I said they're not obligated to pay for it necessarily, that does not imply that they're not responsible. Right. The, the parents need to be responsible and take the responsibility to help their kids think through this stuff. They may or may not be able to contribute themselves financially, but that does not negate their responsibility to walk through this stuff with their kids and help them understand and work through that in a responsible manner. Absolutely. So before the show, we were talking a little bit about older people and how that's the highest group, that that's the largest growing group that's now defaulting. defaulting. How, why is that happening? Is that be, Are they borrowing against their retirement or well, I think it's back house. to the responsibility conversation. Um, you, there needs to be a thoughtful and um, rational and rooted in real life understanding of the debt that you're taking out um, and what you're doing. So what is the benefit going to be in the future versus what obligations am I taking on right now? Um, so when you go through when you, when you jump into something, anything in life, without really looking at the consequences, what, what follows rationally from point A to point B and C and D and E on down the road, um, all of those things, you have to consider the implications of, of decisions and things that you're making. And I think in a lot of cases, um, folks that go back for school in their you know, late 40s, early 50s, et cetera, have this this idea that it's going to double their income or, or you know, triple their income or something. And it's, it's got to be rooted in, you know, why are we doing this? What are the actual tangible benefits for it, from it? And what is the cost that we're, we're doing? Again, just make it a cost-benefit analysis. Actually run the numbers and look at it. And we hope oh, – I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Uh, we're hopeful that, you know, we, we, put out, we put out this debt letter every year now for all students. And this was kind of uh, in response to students not understanding about their loans. So every year um, they get this letter from Indiana University. Um, and this model that we put together has been adapted by, I think, about 10 other states mm-hmm. now. It became an Indiana state law, and 10 other states have put this program that we, that we started – um, probably eight years ago into place where 
every year the student gets a letter that says, okay, here's how much you have out so far, um, here is what your payment's going to be in the future, um, and here's a lot of information about your loan. And what we're really trying to do with that is to encourage questions. That's what we love. We love to get the questions if somebody says, hey, oh, wow, here I am, I'm a sophomore, and I have $10,000 in loans. How is that going to look when I graduate in four years? What's my payment going to be? And, and to your question, we hopeful, we're hopeful that if somebody that's older gets this letter as well, they're going to ask a lot of questions so they don't have that problem. Um, we have done some monitoring on that. I know Phil has done some work on trying to uh, target towards that group as well. But um, as Doug was saying, is I, I don't think there has to be a lot of planning with that because if you take a, a lot of debt and you're on a 10-year repayment, um, just like you said, it could cut into some other uh, retirement funding uh, at the end. So I think it's very careful to plan for that. And I'm assuming there's less support available if if you're an older student going back than if you were just graduating or also then if, if, I guess if you're a transfer student. And there, there, there is less. Um, I think, you know, they're always encouraged to go out and get scholarships, and there is a lot of funding out there. I mean, that takes – but from, um, you know, from a state aid program or federal aid programs, those are really targeted not to that group at this point. So there's, there's low-interest loans, and I think that's fine. But um, I think, again, it's the planning and being very careful with that. Yeah. And I think part of it, too, is, you know, you're, you're not – Specifically, maybe when you're graduating undergrad and you're the, the typical age to do so and you're moving right on to graduate school, you're kind of more current and conversant in in what aid is out there. And I think you're more apt to seek it if you're someone of a bit more advanced age who's deciding to go back. You know, I think the more expedient thing is maybe maybe to take loans without necessarily thinking about the consequences. Um, and then a lot of it, too, is attributable to people that, that are taking on loans on behalf of their children or even their grandchildren. You know, I think it's a really natural instinct to want to um, provide a better life for the next generation or two generations down in your family. Mm-hmm. But it absolutely should not be done at the expense of your own retirement security, um, especially if you default on those loans, your Social Security benefits can get garnished at, at like 15%, I think it is. Um, and in 2015 alone, over 100,000 student debtors over the age of 50 had some of their Social Security benefits seized to repay overdue federal student loans. So, you know, my personal preference is that as many people as possible would save as much as possible as early as possible in a 529 with the caveat that they not do so at the expense of whatever their retirement savings needs are, um, but then also that they especially, you know, not take on a, a parent plus loan or, or student debt that, that they're not going to be able to pay off in retirement on behalf of, of someone else in their family. Absolutely. So, uh, Troy, uh, how much should people really be realistically putting into one of these 529 plans? What should they be planning for per child? So, that, that's, actually, that's actually a, a great question, um, and it's something where, like a lot of other financial needs and, and plans and, and options out there in life, there's not really a one-size-fits-all answer. While, you know, it is my, my job to grow and promote our program, as someone who just cares about financial wellness, generally speaking, I would never tell anyone to, to do this at the expense of their retirement savings. Um, if you're someone with, with excess income that is, is funding retirement to the best of your ability and at a level you're comfortable, 
and you have the means to contribute at least $5,000 a year to earn the 20% tax credit here in Indiana, um, I, I think it behooves you to do that. Like we said, it's an instant 20% return um, on investment. There are lots of calculators out there online that, that can help you kind of right-size your savings for certain types of education. Like if you just say, I'm going to commit to funding a four-year public in-state education for my brand new baby now, 18 years from now, there are tools out there that can tell you, here's about what you need to save. Um, but if you're just thinking, I want to chip it, chip away at this a little bit of a time, saving $10 a week for 18 years, you'll set aside about $9,300 of your own money and assuming a 5% rate of return on your investments, that could grow to about $15,000. And obviously you can scale it up from there. And 15000 um, so is better really than zero. It's just about starting earlier and, and making a consistent plan of investment over a long period of time. I, I want to ask you, Phil, if you ever have to have the conversation with people, somebody who comes in with $9,000 or something for a four-year degree, do you ever have to say, this isn't going to work? I mean... We have conversations with people where the numbers just don't add up. I mean, obviously, we don't want that to be the case. Like, we want everybody to come to Indiana University that wants to. I mean, I'm from Bloomington. I have a degree from IU. I love this town. I love this university. Would love to have everybody have that same experience that I've had um, over my life. But if the numbers don't add up, um, and, and really, I would say this is more true of like out-of-state students, like the out-of-state students that are trying to pay out-of-state tuition to come to IU. If those numbers don't add up, like there are great in-state institutions at every state in this country. Um, there's research that actually shows, with the exception of a few universities, it doesn't matter necessarily where you get your degree. Uh, the important thing is that you get your degree. So really what we want to see people do is you know, focus on their finances, figure out what makes the most sense, what they can afford. And if the numbers add up for them to come to Indiana University, fantastic, wonderful, we want to have you here. But if they don't, that's okay. Go to the university that makes the most sense for you financially there. Still root, be a Hoosier in that regard. That's totally fine. Again, love to <laughs> have you. fans. Yeah, we'll always have more fans. <laughs> but, you know, but do what's, do what's going to be best for your financial long term. Don't make this really short-term decision. It's a four-year thing. And don't have that impact the rest of your life in a very negative financial way. And, and we're doing some counseling on that as well. So uh, I think just as Phil mentioned, when students come in for out of, from out of state, and let's say for example they're Pell eligible, so we know that you know there's there's financial need that it, and the cost of attendance and. That usually kicks off more of a counseling session to say, hey, okay, you're coming here. We'd love to have you come to Indiana University. How are you going to finance this? Because the last thing we want somebody to do is come in here and finance that with loans, the whole thing, right? And obviously federal loans would never even come close to covering that. It would be more of private loans or plus loans or something which could cause a big hardship for a student. So that really does kick off that. But you'd be amazed. Um, some students that come here, you, that we have these conversations, they have somebody that's helping them pay for it, or they've saved a lot of money through a savings plan, or something has happened. But um, just as Phil said, there are students that we say, you know, this is probably, uh, th there's probably better options for you out there. The last thing you want to do is to come here and leave here with all this debt. Um, and I think we've had good success with that, those conversations, especially in the, in the Money Sparts area, talking to those students. Yeah. I read some I'm sure this is a big part of, oh, sorry, real quick. I'm sure this is a big part of like Jim's, Jim's debt letter and, and Phil's individual counseling efforts and everything too. And, but we've talked a lot about appropriate borrowing. 
you know, borrow for really core expenses. Don't take an exorbitant loan for living expenses mm-hmm. at, like, say, the fanciest off-campus apartment or um, whatever, you know, groceries or, or, or things someone needs. Those are the types of expenses that I think are best covered by, you know, employment income um, or other streams of income. Don't, don't just borrow as much as you can because someone tells you you can borrow that much. You might not necessarily be able to afford the payment later on. Amen. Yeah, and, and, one of the, and one of the things that we always tell students, and granted, obviously, there are circumstances where this can't apply, but we always tell people, work during the summer to fund your educational expenses, work during the school year to fund your social life. Because um, one thing we don't want to see students do is borrow for their social life. So if they have, like, and this is a great exercise in budgeting, too. Like, if they are working X number of hours, you know, we always like to say put 10% away just into savings, just so you have that for a rainy day, whatever you want to say there. But then the rest of that money can fund your social life. Perfect. Then all of a sudden you're working off of this budget that's going to help you or help avoid you go into debt, whether or not it's more student debt or if it's credit card debt because you don't have the money in your bank account to pay for it off the bat. Like that seems to be a good way of funding your college experience. I've read in a a lot of places that there's this worry of creating a sort of a larger divide between the haves and the have-nots because if students who do have need and Pell Grants don't cover it all, it's figuring out how to close that gap. Um, How has IU sort of helped prevent something like that from happening? Well, we have a lot of our institutional aid that will then kick in and cover it, um, especially for Pell-eligible students. There, there are other programs. There's the, the Pell Promise, which covers the costs up to the full tuition. Um, the, you know, we work uh, with the state aid programs, and then we have the, the Covenant, the 21st Century uh, Scholar Covenant, where um, we also cover other expenses with institutional aid. So we, we do a lot of work um, to, to, with a population with need to make sure that uh, there is um, options available and to make sure that they can graduate with, with, without excessive amounts of debt. So um, I, I think our biggest population probably are the students that don't qualify for the federal aid or the state aid. Um, and that's where I think it's so important to, for the planning and the savings because those families that come in with you know probably a, an income of maybe over sixty or $70,000 um, they're, they're not going to qualify for a lot of these grants. It's going to be a lot of loans or, what, or their own payments they're going to be making on, on the tuition and other, other pieces. So that's where I think the planning really is important um, when you're coming in. Because the other thing that is important is the scholarships. And getting out there and searching for those scholarships, the, one, the students that really spend a lot of time doing that usually have pretty good luck getting something. There is a lot of resources out there, but it's, it's very time-consuming. Mm-hmm. Um, we offer quite a few at Indiana University, automatic scholarships and others. But otherwise, going out and talking to people in the community, you know, applying for these, looking at different ways, the majors you're going to be in, and um, working that, it can be a pretty time-consuming piece. But a lot of students have great success with that as well. And, and Doug, when do these loans start kicking in? If you do have to, if you do have to take out loans, when do you have to start repaying them? And should you get them deferred? All these different. Yeah. Well, typically upon graduation uh, or shortly thereafter, you're going to begin to have to start repaying the loans. Um, and that is, you know, we've talked about, you know, the average student takes 21 years to pay off their loans. Um, you know, Dave Ramsey talks about how you don't want to have student loans so around so long you think it's a pet. Um, that is not, you know, that's not the, the ideal way to do it. And, you know, as we're talking with folks about that kind of thing, we're, you need to attack those loans 
um, get them taken care of, get them paid off, if possible, three, four years. Um, like really go at it hard. When you, I mean, let's be honest, when you graduate from college, your, your bills aren't usually as high as they get later in life when you get married, start having kids, et cetera. Your expenses go up uh, the, the further in life you get typically. Um, and so when you really, when you get out of school is when you typically will have some disposable income. Um, so as, as you look at paying off some of those loans, um, one of the first and most important things you can do is just, you know, like, um, like was mentioned here before, get on a budget. Uh, I know it's a it's like the the bad six letter word budget, uh, <laughs> but the the reason we have and I tell people this all the time the reason we have a budget is so that you don't feel bad for doing things because every time you go out to eat if you're if you're not on a budget you feel guilty for it you know I sh- really shouldn't be doing this but okay um, whereas if you have a budget this is the amount of money I've gotten food it's the end of the month I've got four hundred bucks in my food budget I've only spent three hundred bucks I can go out to eat guilt free it's there it's in the budget. That's fine. That's the purpose of a budget, not to keep you from doing things, but to give you permission to do things, okay? Um, So get on a budget and pay more than the minimum payment on the student loans. Uh, They set the minimum payment there, but that's not the recommended payment, okay? That's the minimum payment. You should be, if at all possible, paying two, three, four times the minimum payment if you at all possibly can. Um, Again, it's a trade-off thing. Uh, you know where it, it it's going to it's going to take pain to do that. You know it requires some financial sacrifices in order to get out of debt that quickly. Um, but again, you know I talk through this with with folks all the time. You can't have your friends' lives because your friends are all in debt. Okay, if you really want to get out of debt quickly, you can't have your friends' lives. You can't go out to eat as much as they do. You can't you know you can't have your parents' life when you graduate. Your parents didn't have the life they had now when they graduated. They had a very, very simple life, typically, when they graduated. My wife and I were eating rice and beans and rubble, rubbing nickels together um, you know, when we first got out of school. And I think most, most everybody, when they graduate that and get married, that's their, their testimony of, of their life when they first start. You're, you're typically kind of poor when you first graduate from college and you work hard um, to do without luxuries. You can get a part-time or a second job. Uh, again, this isn't a lifestyle. This isn't something we're going to be doing for the next 20, 30, 40 years of our life. This is a short-term, very focused period of time that we're working really hard for a purpose. The purpose is get out of debt um, as quickly as you possibly can. And then one of the things that I talk, I tell people, apply any raises or tax refunds to your student loans. So as you get raises at work, don't expand your lifestyle with that money. Apply that money towards your student loans roll that payment up, make that payment bigger and bigger and bigger. That's the way you get out of debt, out of these things quickly. And I would say I, I agree with Doug. I mean, we have a lot of students that get out that, you know, they, they start working, they, they want to get these loans paid off. There isn't a, any penalty for prepayment. They get out there and they, they really work at getting these paid off. A lot of our students are on a 10-year repayment um, when they leave with the debt we have. But if, if, if they can do it earlier, we very much encourage that. But the other point with that, I would say, is, um, and this is, we talk about loan defaults, right? What usually happens with loan defaults is, is a student will just not call. They don't do anything. There is a lot of options for students when they get in trouble. You know, there's hardship deferments. There's a wide ri- variety of payment options they could get on. So, but what happens, they just they just say, I can't pay it. They don't call. They don't do anything. And then they end up in this terrible situation. Um, 
so we that's another thing we work at a lot with IU is to we, we contact those students when they get past due and say, hey, listen, you don't want this to happen to you. You want to call your lender and work out and work through arrangements. So yeah. we've had some great success with lowering our default rates with that as well. So communicate early. Unfortunately, we are out of time. We've a lot of good tips. So thank you all so much for all the information today. That's all the time we have for Noon Edition. I want to thank our guests, Jim Kennedy, Phil Schumann, Troy Montanay, and Doug Ummel. Thank you all. For co for co-host Emma Atkinson, Thank producer you. Benta Boothier, and Kathy Knapp, engineer Mike Pashkash, I'm Sarah Whitmire. This has been Noon Edition. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU Public Radio. A podcast of this program and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville, fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from the Herald Times, featuring coverage of local news, entertainment, and sports. In print at heraldtimesonline.com and on your mobile device. And from the Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org.